Listen, there's no debate that there is no other brand that represents our culture quite like Nike. Nike is the father to the Jordans, which makes up the whole shoe Mount Rushmore by themselves. Jordans are the only gym shoes that's appropriate for tuxedos and black tie affairs. As the world's most iconic athletic wear, it comes as no surprise that it's black people's number one choice when it comes to fashion. Hell, Nelly made a whole song about it. Its origin story is a true example of when grandma would tell you to write your plans in pencil because God's plan might differ from yours. What began as a graduate assignment turned into an idea. That idea manifested into an action plan. That action plan formed into a character that shaped the culture which ultimately became a destiny. There was no real plan or no blueprint, if you will. They literally just did it. The Bros Bookshelf presents to you another banger by the creator of Nike, a Phil Knight's memoir. Shoot Cause if that shoe is on that shelf, you should have some, man You cannot sit up and tell me that you have none, man You may not have three or four, but you got one, man I said, give me two birds I need two birds So I can get the stomping in my earth force one Welcome to another podcast episode of the Bros Bookshelf With your host, Lennon Givens I'm here with my wife, Dr. Teresa Givens Hello. Hey, once again, join my line, brother, the Deuce Dog, Donovan Snipe. What's happening? What's happening? What's happening? You know, we still got the silky baritone voice of Dr. Harvey Hinton III. (laughs) Today, we have a special guest on the podcast. We was talking. Actually, he's the reason why I picked this book. We was talking and he was like, bruh, have you read Shoe Dog, Phil Knight's memoir? And I was like, nah. And he was like, bruh, I use that book as my inspiration. So the inspiration he's talking about, David Castro is the owner, founder, CEO, creator of one of the most iconic black owned fashion brands. And that's Dungeon Ford, D-U-N-G-E-O-N, Ford, F-O-R-W-A-R-D. But anyway, he's my Neo, 05 Upsilon Psi, FAMU graduate from the School of Architecture. I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Mr. David Castro. What's good, bro? I appreciate that that intro. (laughs) Man, it's more of an honor to have you. I appreciate you coming, man. Harvey, what you think about this book? Hey, man, I told somebody, when the last time you heard a billionaire tell you how they started their company? So it's like that. I mean, if you if you ever thought about going into business, I think this is a book you need to you need to listen to, you need to read. So um kind of it's got a it's got its moments but yeah i think i think it was a i think it was a good good selection good choice i'm I'm, thank you mr knight for sharing that with us Teresa, what you think 
enjoyed the book very much. I am starting to believe that most successful people are quirky. Now, come on, guys. There's a bevy of beauties over there just waiting to be swept off their So it's hope for you yet, babe. Um, quirky. He had a lot that seemed to, you know, I looked at him like, wow, you know, why him? But then you say, well, why not him? And I think that his story was one uh, full of him expressing the mistakes that he made, but yet still being able to overcome a lot of that and still be who he is. And it was a good read. I thought this story was like one of those great American dreams that people everywhere wish they could have, but in reality probably can't but like this is the story that like they tell like you can make it you just just do all of this stuff and you'll be good but then i was listening to it i was like well this dude had a lot of crazy advantages like he left work for how long to do what for another company Mm -hmm. but yeah this book was replete with a lot of privilege listen serving quarters you know what i appreciate though what's that he didn't he didn't really conceal that you know, I, I think no, I, I think a lot of times, like, you know, quote unquote, self-made people, they they try to make it seem as though, you know, they got it out the mud. And I, I think he was really clear on, uh, you know, his advantages. Like, oh, yeah, my dad knew this CEO. I had met him several times. Like, you know, I, know. I, I think it came off more as like, this is just matter of fact, like, true. I go to the grocery store, I buy butter, my dad's a millionaire. I can take off weeks off from my job. I can just <laughs> I find somebody both, to find Donovan. Here's a guy who was 24 years old. He had spent the year in the army. He graduated. Um, I don't know. Was this the business degree that he graduated in or a philosophy or something like that? Then he went to grad school to get an accounting degree. And uh, Stanford. Yeah, Stanford. Yeah. But then he, he put together this presentation that he thought was awesome because he was a runner and he just kind of stumbled his way upon this company and it I don't became think he stumbled though dog come I, on now don't he don't, did stumble for in this no i think bro the company started from a lie uh, that's not but stumbling that was stumbling that's not stumbling he had no plan Yes, he yes, did, he did. Have a plan. Mm. He had a full No, he didn't. His plan. plan was to make running shoes. But he also <laughs> had a, a full... Okay, so... No, that wasn't his plan. Okay, hold on one second. So when you go to school and you have to come up with these presentations and whole... Um, what are they called? They're not thesis, whatever. It's a whole model that you have to do in business school. It's almost like your dissertation kind of. So he had a whole study of this. That's called a plan. But his study was that Japan does really well in making cameras. And I think that they can get in the forefront of Ooh. making running shoes. Okay. So and I want to go to Japan and tell them my idea on maybe they should get Lenny, into making running whole, shoes. Yes. And it, it was about production. It was about everything. But so it wasn't his plan I'm and he not, wasn't planning on making a company. It was 1960 something and he went and happen. told him how yeah. he felt. I thought that was freaking amazing. 
it was it was about how he could implement that in America. So he had the vision. He was like he Frank went Lucas. to he Japan went to, to try to get <laughs> someone to. Who would you get it into the states? You ain't got to worry about that. Who do you work for in there? You ain't got to worry about that either. Who are you really? Frank Lucas says it right there in my passport. Do, that what people do now. You know, Rihanna doesn't make this makeup. Rihanna just is like, hey, I have, I want to sell makeup. I'm going to Hong Kong and I'm going to have this factory make this makeup and put my name on it. And then we're going to sell it. Hmm. It's well, I saw it different. Okay. Because even when he went in there and they said, oh, what's the name of your company? He was like, Blue Ribbon. Yes, because he had an entire plan that he just didn't put a name on. So I really don't feel like I think that pretty much a lot of what he did seemed he had the vision in his mind from the beginning. He knew and he said it, which is the best part of this book to me, which was I don't want to work a job that doesn't feel like play. Right. That's what it's all yes, about. That was his plan. That's mm, wait, is that a plan or is that a, it is a plan? To, to, it's a yeah. vision. It's a vision. vision. It's a I'll vision. Get, and then when you start writing it down, the yeah. steps to get there. That's a plan. Nothing so stopped him from getting in it and getting what he wanted. Nothing I think that's. Him. I think that's gumption. I think that's perseverance. I think that's grit. Yeah, and and he I was think a virgin that when he started. Yeah, <laughs> that has nothing to do with it, though. That's probably why he was able <laughs> to, to stick to it, it so much without yeah, distraction. Because he told us, so it did have a lot to do with it. Yeah. I, That's the kind of guy he was. Make <laughs> sure to put that in there. Here's another thing when I said about privilege. Y'all, he met with the founder of the shoe company, and he met with all the head executives, and he was late. The world was smaller so, then, Lenny. I was about to say, the world thinking was, of privilege in the, the sense of, I mean, yeah, at that particular time, I say all the time, you know, what the things that you do now compared to what you did in the 50s and the 60s, I mean, it costs $16,000 to buy a house. Yeah, that was insane. Just even yeah. listening to the numbers in which he was spending on the shoes, like just having to come up with $1,000. Like it just, it, it, if you get anything from this book, you get a sense of inflation. Like it, yeah. it, it was insane. Heck yeah. One of the most relatable things in this book to me was the fact that Phil went to the military, went to college, graduated from Stanford, and moved back home, still trying to locate his purpose in life. And as a father, you know, and have gone through it myself. You always up under this pressure, like you're 18, you leave the house, you go to college, and if you come back home, you're considered a failure. But really, that's kind of normal because none of us, I mean, a lot of us don't know our purpose. And here we have the person who started the most successful shoe brands or just brands, period, in the world, came back home and was living with his parents at 26 all the way up until he was 30 trying to figure it out. And another thing I like when his uh, dad's friend told him to, hey, man, just become a CPA because even as a CPA, if you change jobs, you can always get another job at your same pay rate, pay rate. So even I 
as somebody in my 40s, I've had to change careers three times and start all over again. So I understand that. And um, and I also understand the importance of when you're building something, make sure you build something around a bunch of smart people and people you want to be around people that are smarter than you. That's another takeaway because he built Nike. He assembled a team of a bunch of eccentric rejects who were unemployable people from other places. Exactly. Harvey Hell, Jeff Johnson he believed in the company more than Phil did. And he had more aspirations for the company than Phil did. And he was actually the one that pushed Phil to keep on going. And this guy was writing him every day. I mean, the way Phil talked about it, I I, I had to do some soul searching on my level of communication. Am I, am I, am I being persistent enough in trying to get people's attention? Because uh, mm. that guy was definitely on it. I think they were the answer to that question is probably almost always no. Like <laughs> right. You, if you haven't, if you didn't get what you wanted, and you right. and you, you kind of chilling, yeah, it, you're not you're not really trying. I remember I remember my aunt one time said uh, she was she had lost her job and she said, "Hey man, I'm trying to get a new job." She's like, "I'm I'm I'm applying for that at least three jobs a week," and I, I was like, ah. "And this is like a time where." You know, you could apply on Indeed and all these different places and submit the same resume, the same application to a bunch of different places. And uh, but she saw that as being very ambitious and, and it wasn't. It was, you know, almost lackadaisical. And so when you think think about it and you look at that, like that's that's what it takes. At least that's what I took from it. It's like the persistence, the persistence, because I think about that with my brand all the time. I didn't really have a direction. You know, like um, the the brand started. We were called Complex Apparel. We used to tag these uh, these question marks, right? And um, and it was everything was painted, and it was mainly because you know I was a broke college student, and we couldn't afford to buy the clothes that we would have wanted to buy that would have made us feel dope, right? And so instead of doing that, we went to like Foot Action or or any of these stores that had like T-shirts five for twenty. And you said, and we said, you know what, we're going to make our own. And um, and so in doing that, it was, you know, some people that showed interest. So then we saw the opportunity to make some sales and doing that. We already had the supplies because we were in architecture. And so it just made sense. So it was like an organic business. Like I, I didn't set out to turn that into a business. It kind of happened on its own. Um, but I've always had this like entrepreneur itch as well. Like the, the idea of you know, making something out of nothing. And that's kind of what led to the the brand name, Dungeon Forward, or from the Dungeon Forward, or from nothing to something. And as the brand developed, and we started to try to center around that mantra of, of nothing to something, then this plan started to evolve, right? And so I think, you know, when, when folks go into the creation of a business from like the the MBA mindset, like I, I know exactly who my customers are going to be. I know exactly what I'm going to create. I know exactly what my intention is with regards to a potential exit or whatnot. That was never even in the conversation for me. It, it started as make shit, sell shit. And 
now I, I'm still in a space where where you know I, I've gotten to a point now where we we're, we're much more in tune with who our customers are, much more in tune with where we want to go as an organization. But now it's it's like really choosing like who we're going to partner with, and then when are we going to fully expand into a full ensemble outside of headwear alone? Because that was a conscious decision too to go kind of like that Steve Madden route. Like make a name for yourself in a single space that has yet to be really innovated upon. And then once you have name recognition, brand recognition, similar to like Rihanna, it's kind of the same similar thought process behind using headwear to make a name for Dungeon Forward. And then from that, potentially expanding into full ensemble. But now with the the, the guidance of uh, being a brand that's about storytelling, being a brand that's about uplifting culture and being a brand that's about innovation. And so that didn't exist at the very beginning. That's what we grew up to be. You know, like I remember the first store that I tried to get into. Um, this was before we were making headwear, we were making tees and we were painting clothes back in the day. And um, it was called Culture Kings and Culture Kings is actually huge in Europe now. And those guys looked me dead in my eye and was like, nah, bro, this is this definitely ain't for us. And me just to save some semblance of my soul in that moment, because I was hurt. Right. I didn't I, I hadn't heard no yet. And uh, I, I was like, well, let me buy some stuff in here. Like, I don't need y'all, but I'm going to give you some of my money. It was the dumbest thing. Right. But it defeated right. me in the moment. And then I realized, like, man, it's. It's some chains that got 1,600 stores. You know, I'm talking about one store, you know? You know, I think it's the concept and constructs that we live under that is very linear. We don't see dual purpose or multi-purpose in our experiences. And so, you know, the idea that you could be in architecture, then, you know, architecture is just, you know, it's not about buildings or, or wires. It's product design. No, it's harnessing creativity. Like that's a multi-purpose understanding about something. It's I think that's that's something that we we miss in in our cultural upbringing. I think that's why um, it it can appear for certain people who want to make sure that you're on the straight that you have to do certain things. But but all those experiences are preparing you for for what there is to come. Um, I wanted to know Lenny from David. I wanted to know the same way um, Phil Knight had to wrestle with going public, you know, um, as an entrepreneur, I never thought about having to go public and I don't, you know, I, I like you in the, in the sense that, you know, you want to create something and that's where you get your passion from. So where does going public become part of your reality? Or uh, does it? I think, uh, yeah, I think is you know, the, the nature of growth and scale kind of, Put you in a position where that's something that you have to consider, right? So, like for me, um, one of my like inspirations in terms of like building a business up into the point to sell is uh, Sarah Blakely, and uh, and Sarah Blakely, her, it, I don't, I don't know anything about what it is to wear her brand, right? But her brand is Spanx, and it solves a problem for women, um, and I think they now have. Uh, them for men, but it's really just making sure like your clothes look a little bit better when you put them on. Right. And um, 
And when she created this, she had several opportunities along the way to take on venture capital uh, because she was being successful in, in, in doing it. She decided not to, to maintain 100% equity and rather than take on capital, she took on notes, right? So for me, uh, you know, if I was at a point in which it made sense to make an exit, right? And for me, an exit really just means exiting um, fiscal control over my organization um, because it's going to be so life-changing that it would change my life, my daughter's life, and then per perhaps her children's lives. I think after having navigated yourself to a space where you built something like that, I would probably be confident, confident enough to think that I could do it again, right? Um, but now I, I encounter it now. Like I just had a, uh, a, not going public, but, you know, diluting my, 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 uh, ownership. Uh, I just had a recent conversation with the NFL PA and, um, they have a program that was supposed to, you know, uplift minority businesses and no, no disrespect to their program, but I realized very quickly that it was for like, really, 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 really early startups. Because in the conversation, they said, you know, as a part of being in this program, you know, we're going to do X, we're going to fly you out to the uh, draft. And it's all of these like kind of courting things. But on the back end, one of the ask was, uh, we're going to have to uh, also take some equity that's in alignment with the work that we do to help you build your organization. And, and for me, I felt like I was putting the cart before the horse a, a bit, right? And I don't even know if I'm really supposed to be talking about this, because we didn't, but we didn't sign a contract, so it don't matter. But, um, but you know, in that, I, th I think another part of your journey as a business owner is understanding the potential penalties of moving forward with certain relationships. But check this though, when he went into business with his coach, he was giving his coach 50, 50. <laughs> and then his coach turned around and gave him 51, 49. Like that. Well, he didn't want to, he didn't want to be in the business. Well, like he, the, the term he used loggerheads. I don't want to be at loggerheads with you, but you know, when I, that's, when I first, when I, <laughs> no, when I first read that, I thought that it was going to be a turning point and it was going to be a lesson in the book about, who you go into business with and they can possibly steal your, your dream. But as the book progressed, I'm like, you know what? He hit another home run because had it not been for coach Bowerman, there would be no Nike. There would be no Nike. Mm -hmm. Coach Bowerman because was a G though. It was the same. He was a mad scientist. Well, and I thought it only made sense that at the end that Bowerman had 51% of the company because really he was the company. The idea that Bowman was making shoes, like studying the gate, <laughs> studying the foot, the, studying the wear, studying... Studying the rubber to use, using guy, a waffle machine. Using a waffle machine, making... Polyurethane, up, I think he was using. Come on, man. Yeah. This guy, well, they were talking about developing polyurethane at that time, yeah. Yeah, he was a way ahead of his time. Way ahead of his time, man. He said he calculated the stride. The run stride is six feet uh, each stride. So uh, then he did the uh, then then he did the weight of the stride in, in a mile. And so he even tried. He experimented with cod skin to try to make a shoe. So yes, he was way ahead of his time because his 
thing was win, win, win. Is that ahead of your time? Yeah. Well, that's how track coaches are, man. Track coaches know how to maximize potential. Like, I'm going to give a shout out to one of the bros, Leroy T. Walker. Message! Dr. Leroy T. Walker was born in Atlanta in 1918. A gifted athlete, he enrolled at Benedict College in Columbia, South Carolina on an athletic scholarship. He was an all-conference basketball player and an all-American quarterback. He began coaching at North Carolina College in 1945. During his tenure at NCCU, he coached 111 All-Americans in track and field. He has coached 40 national champions and 12 Olympians. He also coached athletes at every Olympic Games from 1956 to 1976. It was in 1976 that Dr. Walker became the first African-American Olympic head coach when he led the U.S. track and field team in the Montreal Olympics. He was, of course, much more than a coach. Under Dr. Walker's leadership, the committee produced one of the most successful Olympic Games ever, the Atlanta Games of 1996. In the opening ceremonies, it was Atlanta's native son, Leroy T. Walker, who led the march of America's athletes into the stadium. He was one of the, the good, the brothers, and um, there's the physical education building in North Carolina Central named after Dr. Walker. He was one of the black coaches that was one of the Olympic track and field coaches. I'm pretty sure him and Bowman's paths crossed because these, these people, they love to maximize human potential. So it's more than just the sport to them. You know, they believe that anybody can is an athlete. Everyone's an athlete. So it's not about who can play these crazy games. It's about who can maximize human potential. I also like how he made those analogies about running. Because if anybody, if you run, you understand this. You really have no destination and you have to fall in love with the act of just doing. Right. Right. So when when Castro said we just make shit and sell shit, that was almost like the theory when he was talking about running, how you just you you have no real destination. And that's kind of like the the metaphor of this book and the metaphor of the company. It was no real destination. We was just making shit Take and selling shit <laughs> and, and emptying our coffers and emptying Try our bank accounts to buy more product, to sell more product, to empty Same our bank account, to buy more product yeah. and sell more product. One simple addition to that. And <clears throat> that's kind of what came about in the company when they actually got to a place where they felt like it was make or break and their product was not great. People mm. bought the products anyway because they knew the quality that they had produced before and the philosophy of the tigers that they had been selling. So they just say, you know, look, we trust your company because we know that you're not out here trying to make a buck off of people, that your product is good, you care about your product, and you're in it for the runner. So I think that did separate him from a lot of people because even at that time, you know, in America, people are starting to make products because, and they're starting to see that, oh, we can make things to make money. I and think at that particular time in history, you know, we had factories and the greed was not there per se that America has right now. You know, you had the good old working people. Of course, you had privileged people. That's always been. And most privileged people got their money underhandedly. But it was a good work ethic for the most part. And they stood apart because they gave a good product. And it didn't hurt that Sarah Fawcett wore a pair of his shoes on Charlie's Angels. Hmm. 
So you Farrah know, Fawcett? huh? Farrah. Farrah Fawcett, yeah, Farrah Fawcett warm on Charlie's Angels. I think that was after. No, that, uh, they talked about that, and that was a big boost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know, but, so you know, it, over he had a lot of those things happen to him. You know what? One one of the things you know, I'm running through the book real fast, but this book is long. As I was progressing through the book, book so was it just me or were, were y'all waiting on when he get to Michael Jordan? No, it was. <laughs> he never got to Michael. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he did. Yeah, he I mean, like, death. he didn't give Michael Jordan his due. And I don't right. know if that right. was because. Well, 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 when he talked about at the end, like, the personal relationships he had with his athletes. I mean, Yeah, but he was... just kind of mixed Jordan in there with, like, Tiger. And, all. nah, I don't know about y'all. Else. Yeah, yeah, he did make he did Jordan put Nike did over the top. Well, like the Nike. Brand. I mean, that's and like the urban culture. Is, but yeah. So one of the things that surprised me as a whole in reality was I didn't realize that he wasn't like a a shoe designer at right. the, at the core, right? I right. I didn't realize that, and it right. and it, and it's it's kind of like. I mean, I go back to the Fenty thing. Like he, it blows my mind that that he was doing that then, like without the credibility. Or I mean, I guess his pops, his pops, right? So you probably had they probably had a customer base out that that the average person wouldn't have as a result. But I mean, that was crazy to me. You He's know, because that means that all the technology and everything. Later. He's able to attract the people that can mm-hmm. do what he can't do. But at that particular time, I mean, look at his life. And even when we say privilege for him, of course it was privileged in the sense that number one, he was white and it was the sixties. That's one thing. But, you know, he just was like, okay. His dad was like, look, you know, graduation present, you know, enjoy yourself. That's kind of like saying today, you know, my daughter's going drunk, backpacking, though, backpacking across Europe, you know, for her gap year. That's the type of thing that that is. But the world was so much smaller. And, you know, having a conversation with your banker, I mean, people still have their own personal bankers. But in that sense, it was just unheard of now. But that's mm-hmm. exactly how people started businesses at that point. Little Debbie and everybody else that got started around those times. He was well prepared for every situation that he was about to walk into. Mm -hmm. So before he went to China, he read everything he could about the Chinese custom. When he went to to, um, Japan, Japan, he he read everything he can, how to do business with the Japanese. He was well mm-hmm. prepared. When Even when he was going, having that battle with customs, he was preparing. They, they was up all night. If he says this, then we're going to say this. And he was preparing his, uh, his you speech. You might want to rewind that one, dog. That battle with customs. Rewind that? That was major. It was major. It was very major. It was almost like they tried to blackball him. They did. <laughs> what you mean? Yeah, Almost. they did. <laughs> yeah, they did blackball him. But my point is, he was yeah, well God. prepared. He was well, uh, he read a lot and he prepared mm. himself. Even though I still think he stumbled his way forward. But I guess that's what you do because there's no real blueprint to business other than grit. And you got to have that, that belief 
and that want to in that presentation. And he got to you got to try to make other people believe it too, and that's one thing he was good at. Like he was good at selling the story, and like to David's point where he was saying like how this dude was even like a shoe designer. I remember reading like in Robert Kiyosaki's book, he was saying like how like on the average day most people can make a hamburger better than McDonald's, but like most people don't sell a billion hamburgers, and that's not what it's about. It's not necessarily the best product. It's mm-hmm. about uh-huh. who can sell it and make you believe it in, in it the most, and that's one of his skills that he had and. I think he was really good at like finding out who he has to get in front of and acquiescing to what he thinks they would like. He did it with the Japanese. He did it with the Chinese. Mexican. He did it with the Taiwanese. Yep. The Koreans. Um, and he just kept repeating it. Like the only time he wasn't able to do it is when like it was like some time to like examine him like personally, like when he was on the stand. So like that's when he kind of fell apart with his words. But any other time he had to kind of like put on the show, oh, he was on point. Speaking of putting on a show, he did seize the opportunity to get some straightening on the mistreatment and the exploitation of using sweatshops to make his product. Because he was like, look, everybody was doing it. They just chose to highlight Nike because we're the biggest brand over there. But for the record, I did offer their factory workers more money, but their government stepped in and said, look, our factory workers can't get paid more than our doctors, lawyers, and politicians and cause disruption. Right. So you know, it is what it is. I guess, <laughs> it man. is what it slavery, is. Slavery was legal one day too, man. I guess. Exactly. It sucks. But, you know, he did make a great point. He said, listen, I it can't is, go into somebody's country it's not his fault. and change their government. It's not his That's why I read those books and Rome do as Romans do. Because the alternative would have been able to make them an America and pay American workers. <laughs> well, brothers. maybe the brothers. Could do. We couldn't have that because they was going on strike. Let the brothers. You know, it's, you know, it's crazy. I I have to consider those things, right? Because we make a lot of product overseas, and um, sort of, that's like majority of the factories that we make product with. I've been to. Um, we we've since diversified since the beginning of the pandemic, but um, I've I've also made an attempt to do things in the United States because um, there's multiple reasons, right? Right now we still have tariffs left over from the last uh, administration that I don't know why they're still here, but they're still here. Significant additional costs for us. Um, so it incentivizes like making things domestically. The problem is, is that since for significant amount of time we've been importing product our manufacturing centers don't exist right and so the solution that people try to put in place is more like a penalizing solution where whereas okay you want to import product i'm going to penalize you by charging you you know a ridiculous amount of taxes right well what happens when that happens is like you got people that are just going to avoid it you got it. You got it. Going to be passed down to to you know the consumer. So just it's just going to cause inflation. And so I've always thought like the op- the opportunity is really on the opposite end of that, is, which is incentivizing like production on state side. And so because of what the current environment that exists now for us, it's a there's not even factories that can make what we do. Like externally, like it doesn't even exist. Like our, um, we have 
one of our crowns is called a Sunika Quran, right? It's made by, there's probably like two different organizations that touch this hat to make it um, where we make it at now overseas. In the United States, it would probably be about 10 different, these are 10 different factories. Um, and then at the at the grassroots level, like the sourcing of the actual materials, we don't even have that center anymore. Like the, I mean, the place with the most diverse spectrum of materials is in New York. Next to that is LA. Would you and, would uh, you would you want to see that industry come back by hands or by machines? Uh, so in in fashion, unfortunately, it's like because of the nature of it being different, right? You can't really it's always going to have hands involved. You have hands. Right? You're always going to have hands involved to some capacity, right? I think in, in sneakers right now, there's exploration of like 3D printing sneakers, right? Using um, material called uh, EVA foam and somehow printing sneakers, like similar to uh, the, the Yeezy slides and the Yeezy foam runners, right? Um, but even in that, there's still like nuances. And so they have this other material that they've used to make these 4D shoes under uh, that Adidas is making. So the soles are are, are, are 3D printed uh, where they raise kind of like out this fluid, but still not fast enough to really produce shoes in the same way. To, But um, I think I would love to see like my product on the line like and to be able to like touch and feel everything along the entire process and the only way that i've been able to do that thus far is by traveling to the factories um there was a nut there's a netflix uh documentary i can't remember what it's called I, oh wait i think it's called american factory have you all seen that mm. <laughs> so it's about a factory that does um i think they make windshields or it's something they make glass right and if i remember correctly i think barack is even in this thing um, yeah i but, saw it i yeah. saw it it's in and ohio it, yeah and so it's it's a chinese company yep that, that's bringing a factory to the u.s they're bringing workers there they're training people here and the whole intention is to avoid like all of the you know, the tariffs and duties, the yeah. tariffs, the, the the shipping fees, all of that stuff by just having, you know, a small group of people here. And but they run into a problem because of the American production. Yes. And the versus workers, the, the workers. And the workers. Yeah. Yeah. The, and, yeah. And versus the Chinese workers. Yeah. It's, it's just a different kind of mindset. Yeah. And, and so I think we want to take our breaks. We're we not about to get in, the, in in that glass. There's a lot of things that we're not gonna do, but we want you to nah, pay nah, us. We ain't about that work no more. That's why. That's why I asked some of those hands of, of machines anymore. Because that's the the reality is, unfortunately, our relationship with labor in our culture means that we're not gonna have people who're gonna do that kind of work for no reason. Well, they, well, they took them right. to China and they showed them how they, they, they took a group of American workers from that factory to China to show them how they actually work in China and in unison. But here's the, here's, here's the thing that people are not talking about. Those people over in China that's doing all that working, they are miserable. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I'm they have about. miserable lives. 
And in in America, we want our happiness. We Mm -hmm. want our time off. We want our uh, time with our family. You know, they don't really have that. They work and they die. So you remember it was years ago where the people at the, uh, I think it's a Sony PlayStation factory. They they did like a massive suicide. Y'all remember that? Mm. I don't remember that. News from Foxconn is that uh, it has announced yet another wage hike to try to stop workers from committing suicide, killing themselves. With a second boost in less than a week, it looks like worker pay will be doubled, effective on October the 1st. They'll now earn 2,000 yuan a month. That's just under 300 U.S. dollars. Now, we had uh, 10 Foxconn workers committing suicide this year, including one on the same day that the chairman, Terry Guo, visited the company in Shenzhen to try to stem the suicide tide. Foxconn and its parent company, Honhai, make iPhones for Apple, Playstations for Sony, and other electronic gadgets that you all know and love, including for other companies, including HP and Nintendo. Now, Guo, as you see, there is Taiwan's richest man, and it would take one Foxconn worker 1.6 million years to match Guo's wealth, which is valued at $5.8 billion, with this, uh, even with this new wage hike kicking in on October the 1st. Yeah, it was a massive suicide. So it's it's miserable. So that that is the trade off because we mm-hmm. live in a country of the American dream. Yeah. We can't afford I mean, it, to make it, your 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 shirts it's one for of those the prices. Where still, it's not everybody. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. point you're making is is it is it's so you know um, the majority are suffering while there's a minority that are reaping the benefits that the few. Um, don't ever get access to, and 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 that is consistent in in both places. But I don't know, man. I don't know how we how do we how do we get that part back because that is um. I mean, labor is necessary, right? Labor is necessary. Labor is often the void of creativity, right? And so, like, I think even me in dealing with different cultures, right? The one thing that I've noticed like in working with um, Chinese culture is like, they are amazing at like repetitive tasks. Like they get absurdly good and absurdly efficient at, at, at those types of tasks. But if you, uh, especially in the factory culture specifically, right. But if you, if you try to do something like outside of the, like the mold, right. It's, hugely cumbersome to even make that happen like our, our most coveted um headwear piece is called the sunika quran it took us two years just to find somebody that would even try to make it <clears throat> because it was so far outside the realm of what was already being done and they were they were fearful that they would make it and maybe you only make a thousand of them and then you never come back now we're probably like ten thousand in but i get it and I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. And I, I you know, you know, one one of the things that he did say about the Chinese um, factories that they were this is back then, and I'm pretty sure it's way better now because they run it. But back then, before they started like building their economy up, they had a bad reputation of bad quality control. And uh, do you sometimes? Like in your travels and overseas, who has taken on that reputation in which country? So uh, Vietnam is stellar in quality control, 
right? Oh, wow. Okay. So, so the the folks that I've worked with there, like if I know their quality from the get-go and I see a sample and all of that stuff, I know I'm going to get exactly what I anticipated, right? And the other thing is that I also know that I'm going to get it exactly when they said I'm going to get it. Um, in, in China, the customs are a little bit different. Like they really want to be able to say yes to you, right? So let's say, for instance, you're doing a, a, a hat with a leather brim. It's a, uh, it's a synthetic leather brim. It has a certain abrasive quality. And let's say that hat is, you know, to manufacture, let's say it costs $10, right? And then you're like, ah, what, I'm trying to spend $7. And then you go back and forth, you go back and forth, and you're just like, all right, I'm going to walk, right? Well, they might come back and then say, all right, we could do it um, for $7. And then you get the hat, and then you realize that the, there's something different about the abrasive quality of the synthetic leather. Like if you scratch it, it actually has a scratch, and then maybe it opens up and you see some type of material underneath. and the reason that that's possible is because nine times out of 10, the average person that's specifying a product doesn't really clearly understand unless they're a major corporation, but somebody that's a small business that's really just diving into product creation. They might not understand every single material quality and how to really specify those things. And so anything that you do not specify that you leave up to your factory, they didn't have the autonomy to make a decision in those situations. right? And that's where you start to see a differentiator between working with Chinese manufacturers versus working with like Viennese manufacturers versus working with U.S. manufacturers versus working with South American manufacturers. Oh, you hear the beat. That means we have approached the segment of the podcast where we highlight the lit bars. Lit Lit bars (laughs) are literary (laughs) phrases that we share from the book in which we thought Uh-oh. was lit. So y'all wrote bars. Not yet. That's on season three. <laughs> Teresa, did you have any lit bars you'd like to share from this book? The only thing I really thought about in this book, because he had so much flowery, you have to excuse my voice tonight, I don't know where it went, but flowery words and I so enjoyed how um, he spoke about his travels but because I was listening uh, of course and driving I wasn't able to write them down it was something in the 1965 chapter that I was never able to find again so I settled on page 75 where he starts to talk about his first employee and his personality and the way that he described him. I just thought that um, it's not necessarily lit bars, but he tells the story of in April 1965, he wrote to say he quit his job. He'd always hated it, he said, but the last straw had been when a distressed woman in the San Fernando Valley, he'd been scheduled to check on her because she threatened to kill herself. But he'd phoned her first to ask if she really was going to kill herself (laughs) that day. If so, he didn't want to waste the time and gas money driving all the way out to the valley. The woman and Johnson's superiors (laughs) took a dim view of this approach and that ended his career as a social worker. 
<laughs> He's like, look, man, don't waste my time. You, I know. You, you going to do it for real, for real? Are you going to kill yourself or not? I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I need to know because gas is way too high. Josh, it, it's, like gas that. is 22 cents. I can't be driving out there for that. Donovan, did you have a lit bar? No, I don't. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. My lit bar came out of chapter 1964 in which he describes the art of competing. He goes on to state, the art of competing, I learned from track, was the art of forgetting. And now I reminded myself of that fact. You must forget your limits. You must forget your doubts, your pain, your past. You must forget that inner voice screaming, begging, not one more step. And when it's not possible to forget it, you must negotiate with it. I thought over all the races in which my mind wanted one thing and my body wanted another. Those laps in which I had to tell my body, yes, you raised some excellent points, but let's just keep going anyway. That line spoke dearly to me because I deal with that all the time when I'm trying to push myself to the limit or do things that are very uncomfortable, like running, editing this podcast, any life endeavor, getting out of the bed to go to work, getting out of the bed to go to school, getting up, reading a book to study. It happens all the time. But the great thing about it is those small sacrifices where those huge sacrifices are the things that separate the weak from the strong. And honestly, I'm proud to say that I'm a part of that pantheon of the strong. And it also served as a metaphor for what he was going through in his life as when he had to push through that situation with customs, when he didn't have enough money to pay the workers at the plant in Massachusetts, you know, and all these pitfalls that he was facing, he just had to push through it, just keep on running. And when his body telling him to quit or when life is telling him to quit he had to negotiate with it and just keep on doing it that that quote that you mentioned grounded him and helped him deal with the death of his son you know his son drowned and it was him believing that his son was in that state of euphoric i can i got one more breath i got one more stroke it's all good not that his son suffered, you know. Um, yeah, that that quote is is definitely a, a solid grounding quote. Man. Yeah, I think he said something like a martini moment. Yeah, yeah. the martini moment. Yeah. Did you have a lit bar, Harvey? I got a couple. I got a couple. Okay. I just wrote a couple. So um, <laughs> one of them is uh, come come where the flavor is. I don't know. I just thought that was cool the way he said it. Come where. The- <laughs> Was that around the Marlboro Man? That's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like 1966. Mm-hmm. Um, when he says, uh, and another one, he says, um, I got a jacket from the service quarters. I don't know. It was just something about them service quarters. Him kept mentioning the service quarters. Lynn, I think you mentioned this one earlier. You mentioned this one earlier today. Uh, the coward never started, and the weak died along the way. That leaves us. That yeah. Was pretty cool. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, oh, what about at the game? <laughs> the students at Oregon, they would be chanting at the game, if you can't get your dick in right, get your dick harder. <laughs> they had two coaches named Dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dick harder and dick in right. <laughs> uh, I think you all find a way every time. Hey, it finds me. Hey, check this one out. Um, <laughs> I still didn't know what winning meant other than not winning. Serendipity. That speaks <laughs> to that notion of a plan. Um, oh, this was my leadership style, and we'll talk about this another time. Don't tell people how. Tell them what to do and let them surprise you. Don't tell people, no, tell people what, what to, to do. do. Don't, don't tell, tell them how and let them surprise you with their creativity. Right. Yeah, bro, I've been using that all week. It's a I've certain type that. of mentality, bro. We'll, we'll talk about that in another space because everybody can't handle that, bro. Well, some let people, me tell you. Some people let me like tell to you know about where that whip book. is at. They like to see the damn whip. They like to hear it crack. And every now and then, they like to feel the motherfucker. They don't like to just be given space but that's a whole nother conversation well one one of the most things one of the things that made him most successful in this book is his ability to pick the right people and surround himself with the right people like we we spoke about uh jeff johnson but we we didn't say anything about waddell Waddell was a key part. Waddell was the guy that was confined to the wheelchair that he put over operations. Then he changed his job and put but him over a pair. You you are saying because a lot of this was just chance and circumstance. He didn't go mm-hmm. out and search for these people. These no, he people didn't. showed up at his. Yeah. Like, these were oh. unemployable people, Teresa. Yeah, these were all so, people who didn't want to work. But this what I was talking about. Uh, luck. Him, it was uh, like yes, it was luck. It was privilege. He, like like that was him doing this. That him he went out and found this fit bunch and was like, "I choose you. I choose you. I choose you." Nah, he was and lucky. That, it didn't really happen like that. I mean. Or Woodell showed up because Bowerman was like, hey, I got somebody else who needs a job. Hey, I need you Bowerman was very instrumental. But being able to orchestrate those different personalities and allowing them to do what their strengths were allowed the company to grow. Everybody kind of fell into their place. You know, Johnson could have possibly done it by himself. You know, yeah. had, had it gone that way. But of course, it wasn't his idea. And, you know, we were dealing with the time. It had, I guess had this been, you know, Mark Zuckerberg that, you know, we all know how Facebook started. Same thing. You know, that it could have been like that. And I also see in this book as he continues to grow and see what was going on with the company. And he starts to talk about the mistakes he made. And he talks about, you know maybe what he should have said when Johnson was writing those letters. I mean, he was very honest with his emotions and honest with the things that he didn't do right. Right. Um, Which also goes into kind of what Harvey was saying earlier when he does, because I was wondering as I was reading what, because, you know, I'm not a Phil Knight fan or Nike fan. I didn't real I didn't know that his son passed away. So as when his son was younger and he kept pointing out a lot of the things about his son, it was leading up to 
you know, why he kind of rationalized what was going on with his son's death. And he seems to blame himself quite a bit for what happened with his son. So, you know, he, you did explain that there's a ghostwriter here, but I think that most people do when, because he wasn't a writer, he was an athlete and a creator, but he was able to express himself very well to the ghostwriter for him to be able to take on that emotion and be able to let us feel that journey that he went on from, from start to finish. You know, that's, that's one of the things, and I, I want to wrap it up, but I do want to mention this. That's, that's always the trade-off in, in the people that we we read about in our history books mm-hmm. and our leaders, like you're everything to everybody else, mm-hmm. but you're really nothing to yourself and the people that are close to you because you have nothing mm-hmm. else to give. And I think mm-hmm. that was, that was his son's rub. And his son was like, you always available to Nike, but you're nothing to me. And Martin Luther King dealt with that. Malcolm X dealt with that. You know, we, we love and revere these people. But they kids have a different have a different perspective and a different thought on them. Right. Um, But with that being said, one of the things that I did not do at the beginning of the book that I always do is give the reason why I picked this book. So I'm going to give the reason why I picked this book and then we're going to go into our final thoughts and rating the book. So the reason why I picked this book is because I was out at the cigar bar and I met the guy who started Tally and Twine, the watch, black-owned watch company, Tally and Twine. Um, we was just chopping it up, and I bought up David, and I got David on the phone, and I hooked him up, and then I started telling David, uh, we started talking about the podcast, and he was like, bro, he said, y'all read Shoe Dog? And I was like, no. Nah. And he was like, man, you got to read Shoe Dog, man. That's a good book. You got to read Shoe Dog. So I said, hmm. And you were real excited about it. I got real excited <laughs> about it because he really sold me on it. He pumped me up. But I also <laughs> said, you know what? If I read Shoe Dog, I might can get somebody on this podcast that can boost our listeners up, you know? <laughs> and I said, I, I initially, I said, I might can get David on the podcast. And then it went to somebody else. And then I went back to you, David. And I appreciate you because you came on this podcast with little notice. The only thing you said was, bro, let me check my, my calendar. All right, I'm good. Let's go. And you here. Yeah. I appreciate that. No, so, no problem, man. Man, when we start yeah. seeing your clothes up in um in the Macy's and Macy's and in all these other high-end stores and kids be talking about you in the Black History Month, I'm like, I know that, bro. Mm-hmm. I can actually pick up the phone and call him. I won't do it because he's probably busy as hell right now. But I know him. In his earlier days, he was on my podcast. So uh, it's an honor. And that's what I... Oh, and another thing. His hats are ubiquitous. And it's like one of those things, if you know, you know. So when you see somebody with a Dungeon Ford hat on, it's a statement. Either they connected to FAMU or... They're in that that the cool kids culture. I mm. see your hats a lot around here in Atlanta, a yeah. lot. I was, That's, you know, I didn't realize you were in Atlanta. I was just in Atlanta. I just got home yesterday, and uh, I was there for two days. And I I went out to there was a wine festival that happened this weekend. I went out to that wine festival and I saw saw two people in Dungeon Four hats. I saw somebody in a hoodie, and it's any anytime I see it, I don't really 
get to go out that often. So it's always like humbling. Uh, but one thing that you mentioned that like it impacts me is uh, you were talking about people being everything to their company and then not being the same for their kids. Right. So I'm still at my office right now. Like my, I haven't been home. I have a young daughter. And so the, I, I think the difference in like what I'll do is since I knew I was going to be here and I wasn't going to be able to tuck her in, I just I literally blocked out the middle of my day uh, tomorrow to be able to pick her up, take her to the park, kick it for a few hours and then take her back to the crib and then come in, come back, come back to the office. And I, I think it's like that recharge is just as important for me as it is for me to like be in her space. But you saying that just now made me think about that. So it's irrelevant to this conversation. Maybe. No, it is but, relevant. Yeah. Man, think about this. I wear a lot mm -hmm. of different hats. Thank you for saying mm -hmm. that, brother. And mm -hmm. if I don't put in my children and schedule time for my children, then my children going to come and they're going to erase all that, what I thought I had, and they're going to take their time. So yeah. you always have to make sure that you a lot time for your children, even if that's just watching the show or watching them play video games or what play and catch or whatever, but you have to do it because they will take their time. But with that being said, let's rate the book. Donovan, I want to hear from you. Mm, I guess seven and a half. It was just kind of a slow read for me. Like it was just kind of, I didn't like it after. It took like a long time for me to actually like get excited about this book. Like, okay. it wasn't until like later on. Yeah, Harvey, kind of slow for me. I'm gonna give it an eight, um, just because um, I felt like some of the historical. I don't know. Um, I can't wait to see the movie. Mm. It's got to be a movie. I can't wait to mm -hmm. see the movie. Teresa, what would you rate this book? Uh, I'm gonna do. Wow, I'm agreeing with Harvey again. This is interesting. Eight, uh, and I say eight because boy, you I don't, dig. you don't, I know, you I don't miss on an opportunity to take a dig, boy. Ooh, what? <laughs> I'm agreeing with Harvey again. Oh my gosh. Okay, so <laughs> I, I'm saying eight because I, I did like it, and the writing was really good. I just, I think I'm just not a biography person. I think that once the book gets to things that I already know, I get bored and I want to put it down, but I had to keep reading it because we all know that all the, when I get to like, even with, you know, becoming, it was so good. And then I was like, uh, I'm done. So yeah, once I got, I had to force myself to finish the book. Okay. Well, when I started reading the book, well, listening to the book, it was early Saturday, one Saturday morning. I started like a seven o'clock in the morning. He's correct. And I ran six and a half miles mm. that morning. I got up and I started doing yard work and I was doing all that so I could be in the yard because I couldn't stop listening. So I figured if I was in the yard working, nobody would come out and try to talk to me because they did it they will be scared that I'll try to put them to work. We were. And for the first day, I think I knocked out seven hours of this book because I couldn't stop. And it was more so, it was two parts. It was, 
it was the writing. It was a good story to follow to me. And I guess the whole time I, I kind of stuck with it because I was like, all right, he's going to talk about, he about to get the Michael Jordan. He about to get the <laughs> Michael Jordan. <laughs> and he never got the Michael Jordan. But I ended up finishing the book, waiting till you get the Michael Jordan. But well, anyway. It wasn't the Michael Jordan story. It was the Phil Knight story. It was the Phil Knight story. But it, like, it wouldn't be Phil Knight. It wouldn't be Nike if it wasn't for Bill Bowman. And if it wasn't for Michael Jordan, because hmm. I remember Adidas was ahead of Nikes at that time. Adidas and Converse. Yeah, I feel but like we're anyway. the sneaker generation. I feel like man, Adidas, Kangaroos, all of them. They were like, you know, neck and neck. And then Jordan took them out. So with that being said, I'm going to give it a nine and a half because I, you know, I just felt like he should have gave Jordan some flowers. And it's only a half because the book, it held his own. In with you because technically you de facto picked this book you know uh, <laughs> uh yeah. castro so how would you rate this book so it's funny when you hit me up i was like man i gotta run through the book again right so what i did was i i listened to the book today and and uh i listened to it on double speed because the book you know if you listen to it on regular speed i think it's about 14 hours you listen to it on double speed, you get through it, you know, in seven. And um, and so I give it a nine this go around. I think the first time I read it, I would have gave it a 10 because I was so excited about reading about somebody who did something that's kind of, you know, adjacent to the space that I'm in. Um, and, and so each time I listen to it, it's like I, I find moments that are similar to my story. One of the things that he says in there is... um. When in doubt, speak less. And it, and and I when I did when I heard that this time around, I'm like, man, it's so relevant. It's so relevant to like me right now and and the, the the types of negotiations that we're involved in. And more often than not, you know, you let people put their cards all the way out on the table before you even have to respond. And so, you know, in, in terms of how it impacts me. You know, I, it, it still is at that 10 level. But from a read standpoint, it does start off a bit slow. It does. It does take a little bit of time for it to get to the meat of the book and to get to the spaces that you really want to hear about. Like, you know, thirty five dollars for the logo. And and, you know, I forgot what the other name was. It was like six regime or something. I can't remember what it was, but six dimension dimension. Yeah. Six. Dimension yeah. six. Yeah. And uh but yeah I, I land on that I land on that nine because it's still so 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 relevant to the space I'm in I hope you enjoyed thank you for listening and remember to give us a five star rating share with your friends and tune in to our next podcast as we review the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo